As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Today's episode of Uncorking a Story is brought to you by the Michael Carlin novel Winning Streak, which follows the life of Patrick Trick Evans, a professional golfer who's just accomplished what no one in this sport has done since the 1930s, win all of golf's four majors in the same calendar year. He walks away from the spotlight, though, after the sudden death of his father. Golf reporter Casper Quinlan is eager to capture Trick's story and heads to his hometown of Chatham, Massachusetts, in her attempt to track down the reclusive golfer. She's still emotionally scarred from the car accident that claimed one of her legs years ago and has been unable to sustain a long-term romantic relationship as a result. Writer Robert McMullen is also a broken man. He hasn't been back to Chatham since the sudden death of his teenage daughter a couple decades ago, but he returns to his vacation home to grant his wife's dying wish. Winning Streak is the story of how these three lives intersect, and how each comes to learn critical lessons in order to heal from the pain of loss in their lives. You can buy Winning Streak wherever books are sold online. And now, enjoy the show. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to share with you my interview with Dr. Warren Farrell, an educator, activist, and author of numerous books on men's and women's issues. His latest book, The Boy Crisis, explores the phenomenon of how and why, as a group, boys are falling behind academically and socially in our culture and the implications this trend has on their mental as well as physical well-being. According to Dr. Farrell's research, worldwide boys are 50% less likely than girls to meet basic proficiency in reading, math, and science. And as boys become young men, their suicide rates go from equal to that of girls to five times that of young women. And boys who are growing up with less involved fathers at home are more likely to drop out of school, drink, do drugs, and become delinquent and wind up in prison. The importance of a father, an active father in a child's life is a key point 
that Dr. Farrell and I keep coming back to in this conversation. And it really got me to thinking about my own dad and how fortunate I was to be raised by a caring father who, you know, even after 60 years of marriage, remains dedicated to not only my mother, but, you know, of course, his family. Um, I come from a very traditional household where my mother stayed home and my dad went to work and he traveled a lot Monday through Friday. You know, we didn't really see him all that much. He left my mother alone with four kids to raise. Um, But fortunately, her mother didn't live too far away from us. And grandma was an extra set of hands (laughs) for my mother uh, to help her out. And, and, you know, boy, did she she really needed the help with the four of us. Anyway, on the weekend, my dad would come home, um, and he would indulge in his golf addiction to de-stress from, from his work week, but he always made time for us to, you know, do whatever, like play baseball in the backyard, you know, swim with us in the pool. We grew up in South Florida, so we had a pool like many people did in our backyard, and of course, he would take us to the driving range to, to hit balls because, um, you know, I mentioned about the golf addiction before, Um. When my twin brother and I, this was something that kind of came into to my head when we were when I was talking to Dr. Farrell, but when my twin brother and I had a paper route, he would actually drive the route with us on Sundays because the papers were so big on Sunday that it was difficult to carry them all and hand deliver them to our customers. I mean, we had a pretty big route um, once we moved up to Connecticut. Anyway, during those those Sunday mornings, we'd always listen to Paul Simon's Graceland. Uh, that's the one like cassette tape my dad owned, and uh, it wasn't an A track. It was an actual cassette, but we did have eight tracks too. Uh, anyway, we would listen to that album when delivering the papers, and now whenever I hear a song from that album, I immediately think of my dad and how much he enjoyed helping us with that task every Sunday. And I have no doubt that all the successes I've had in my life and my own general state of happiness are a direct result of having such a positive male role model in my life. In turn, I'm very conscious about this and how I interact with my own kids. And I, I try to summarize all of that my father has taught me in a piece of fiction I wrote called Winning Streak, which is my third book. It's about a professional golfer who runs away from the spotlight after the sudden loss of his father. Um, so how's that for a little shameless self-promotion? Um, anyway, uh, I've rambled on enough about me, and this really should be all about Dr. Farrell and his book, The Boy Crisis. So... Enough for me. Let's hear from Dr. Farrell and his brand new book, The Boy Crisis. Just, just to kick it off, um, tell me a little bit more about, uh, about your background. Well, see, um, in, in terms of that are relevant to this book, The Boy Crisis book, um, I think probably my background started when I was doing my doctorate at, at New York University, and uh, the women's movement surfaced in late 1960s, and I took an interest in it, and I was talking to my um, class at Rutgers University about it, and every time I spoke about the women's movement, they said, boy, well, you are, you know, you are really turned on, and you have fire in the belly when you're talking about this topic, and that led me to changing my doctoral dissertation topic to the you know, potential for the women's movement to have an impact in the world. And, the, um, and so that led to my um, being elected to the board of the national directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City. And so I, that, that led to my speaking all around the world on behalf of women's issues. And everything went fine, so to speak, until maybe the mid-70s and late-70s when I began to see that there were a huge number of divorces occurring, and I started to say, um, it seems to be like there's something, you know, what's happening here that the children of divorce do not seem to be doing nearly as well. 
and I started to begin to see that there was a link between um, the fatherlessness and the children doing poorly. And so I, su I suggested that there be more father involvement and, um, and now um, had problems with much of its constituency. Uh, mothers who wanted to make a decision about to maybe move out of state with a new man and get a new job somewhere and start a new, new life, as they put it. And so um, now debated the issue, and they did listen to me, but ultimately came down with the decision that uh, they, wanted, they were more concerned about expanding women's base and not alienating any women by saying that men should have, that fathers should have children equally to the mothers because that would uh, inhibit women's freedom. And so that got me to understand um, the importance of, um, of this issue, but uh, of the issue of father involvement. Um, but the uh, but then when I um, the, what motivated me to so this this was in the back of my mind through many of the books that I wrote up until um, the research for the boy crisis. But then I began to see that um, there was in in all the boy crisis was manifesting itself by boys doing worse than girls in all academic subjects um, in all sixty uh, more than sixty of the largest developed nations. And what the developed nations had in common was um, enough uh, mastery of survival to be able to offer permission for both divorce and for mothers to have children without being married. And so I investigated those two groups of children, the mothers having children without being married and, and mothers of divorce, and found that when fathers were significantly involved in those, um, in those types of families, the children did not as well as they would in an intact family, but close to it. Um, but and the um, whereas the children who had minimal or no father involvement, almost uh, a very high percentage of them had um, had problems in school and social skills and empathy and um, knowing the difference between assertiveness and aggressiveness. They were more likely to be criminals, more likely to commit homicide, suicide, be depressed, um, be alienated, be failures to launch, not do well in school, drop out of school, be unemployed. On and on, I eventually was able to um, find more than 70 different ways that the children with minimal or no father involvement, what I came to call dad-deprived children, were doing worse. And so I investigated this further and, and ended up with nine other causes of the boy crisis as well. But clearly father involvement or lack thereof was um, uh, the, the main uh, single cause. I have to dial it back to something that you mentioned um, a little earlier on when when you were when you were trying to make an argument for why men, you know, even after divorce, should have equal um, equal custody or equal time, and and that it sounds like that that there were some people who who could potentially take offense to that, and I'm just wondering what what the what that's based on. Um, because to me, yeah. it seems, you know, I think the words you mentioned was it it's taking away from, from a woman's freedom. And I'm just curious how more involvement on behalf of the father could be seen as a way of taking away from someone else's freedom. Yes, well, the, the theory was, and I don't agree with this, but this is the theory, um, it was that... Um, a woman should be free to do whatever she wishes to do, and we shouldn't limit women's freedom. Women should have options. Uh, so there's many, many um, challenges with that with that approach. One is that the um, 
women should definitely have as much freedom as they wish as long as it's about their life. And so, but the moment a woman makes a, a decision to have a child, uh, then that is, that's a, 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 a free decision that comes with responsibilities to put the child's benefit before your freedom. Uh, the child's health, the child's um, psychological, um, you know, uh, welfare, and so on before your own freedom. So you, you have a free decision to end or modify your freedom in, when you have a child. And the same thing is true with a man. He may he ha- has freedom to, to do a lot of things, not everything, but freedom to do a lot of things. But when he makes a decision of his own free will to have a child, that becomes a free, a, a free choice to limit your life. Uh, so that's, that's number one. Number two is that women are doing, um, w- women have taken on an exorbitant amount of responsibility. So the, over the last 50 years, uh, women have taken off of men's um, burden list the obligation to be uh, the sole breadwinner. Um, but they haven't taken off of their own burden list the expectation to be the sole um, parent. And it's important that we create a society where men are as encouraged to take the burden uh, off of women of being the sole parent as women are encouraged to take the burden off of men of being the sole breadwinner. Uh, Women undermine their own long-term freedom when they have full-time involvement with the children, exclude the man, um, aside from it being worse for the children in 70 different areas. It also gives the woman very little chance to have alone time, spiritual time, exercise time, friend time, um, time just to think and feel and, and explore and do what she wishes to do, or time to explore her career in a way that makes her feel purposeful and productive. And so we've really sort of um, taken women's freedom to such a degree that we've actually undermined women's freedom. We've, we've created a paradox of female freedom. Yeah, it's almost working uh, against people in, in such a way. I mean, it, it's working it. against women, against men who want to, um, you know, when we, when we asked when the Pew Research Center, P-E-W Research Center, a liberal think tank asked men um, to, um, to do, if you, these are men who are full-time working men, and they asked the full-time working men, if you had a choice, would you prefer to be full-time with your children full-time working, um, or, um, and, and, the, and 49% of the men said, I'd prefer to be full-time with my children. I just can't be uh, because I, uh, it's my job to produce the income. So we have a huge number of men out there who are desirous of being more involved with their children. Every father's rights group, um, which is really a misnomer because it should be called children's rights group to have the fathers as well as the children. Every father's rights group in the world that I know of is fighting for the right to be more involved with children. And so men are out there, not all of them, but most of them, very willing and able and desirous of being um, more involved with children. And even those that don't think they are, uh, once they see their own infant uh, in their arms and feel that infant in their arms, their oxytocin releases. And if they spend a fair amount of time with their child in the first few weeks, um, what, what happens is a dad brain is developed. That is, there are neurons that lay dormant um, in every male brain 
that when the father connects to an infant, uh, those neurons begin to connect and form the equivalent of a mother instinct that is different from a mother's instinct, but very parallel to a mother's instinct uh, that makes the father in his, um, want to parent that child and protect that child in dad-style modality as opposed to mom-style modality. Now, your book, The Boy Crisis, I mean, it's, it's, it came out during a time in culture where there is so much emphasis on um, kind of women's issues. And, and I don't mean that to, to sound derogatory, and I don't intend it to sound derogatory, but, you know, there's, there's you know, the Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to open up a newspaper or watch, um, watch the news or watch some coverage of some big cultural event without, you know, an important woman's issue being mentioned, yet your book is, I mean, it's titled The Boy Crisis, so it's it's kind of counter-cultural to that um, in a way. Um, Did did you, or have you experienced any resistance because of that at all? Well, I haven't experienced a lot of resistance because there is um, a sort of sense that First of all, you're absolutely right. Uh, definitely, this is you know the book came out a few weeks ago, and it's um, clearly in the middle of the Me Too movement. It's also in the middle of enormous numbers, and all of which are by males. Mass shootings are by males, and um, and the um, and um, it's also a fascination to people that you know the 26 out of the 27 major mass shootings, eight to 27 um, killed. Um, uh, were by uh, fathers, were, were by children who had minimal or no father involvement. And so we have an enormous amount of a sense of, you know, the, the Me Too perpetrators, so to speak, are males, and the school shooting perpetrators are males. And we tend to pay attention to male disposability, that is, Boys have always been trained to be disposable, disposable in war or disposable in work like coal miners or so on or firefighters or police officers or um, loggers, um, multiple rig truck drivers. And these are all, uh, all the hazardous professions are are male professions and the people who overwork um, 70, 80 hours a week to become top executives often die sooner as a result as well. And so the uh, males have been trained to get their pride and to be called hero by being disposable. And so that's always been with us. Um, But uh, we haven't cared a great deal about protecting boys uh, because we expected them to be um, protectors of us and to risk their lives doing that. However, now boys who are hurting by having a lack of father involvement these boys who hurt are hurting us. They're hurting us with the mass shootings. They're so angry. Uh, they're hurting us by um, uh, not being emotionally intelligent and therefore not knowing that when a woman says no, um, it's important to hear her no, maybe dialogue with her about it, but at least hear it, pay attention to it, and give that no the primary consideration and never offend, and never um, ignore it. And so these are things that... Um, that the, the the low emotional intelligence, the social skills that are poor, the inability to operate effectively with um, girls and be be the type of guy that a woman wants to date to begin with, uh, these are all things that are happening today that are hurting women as a result of our hurting our sons 
and are as a result of demonizing men and undervaluing the family, which is the shadow side of the women's movement. The good side of the women's movement is that it opened up millions of options for women. It encouraged them to prepare for those options by um, encouragement from guidance counselors and teachers and their own parents at an early age. It encouraged them to prepare for those options by getting involved in different types of sports that taught them how to win, lose, and accept losses. These are wonderful gifts of the women's movement, but the women's movement had two major flaws, uh, one of which was the demonizing of men and the other one of which was the um, under um, und de uh, devaluing, uh, under undervaluing the family. And I say this as somebody, as you know, who has been on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City for three years. And so I, I understand its positive sides, but there's also its shadow side. Well, yeah, I mean, in any organization run by human beings is going to have, uh, you know, the, the shadow side to it. Um, yeah, well, well, well said, and unfortunately true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, that that's everywhere. Um, but yeah. this, this notion of, um, and, and I'm, I want to be careful about how I say it because I, I don't want it to be misinterpreted. But you know, we, we've placed a lot of focus on um, our girls, and, and I'm I'm speaking to you as the, the father of three. So I have triplets. They are uh, 16 years old, two girls and one boy. Um, wow, how wonderful. And it is, it's fantastic. But, but I, I know that and I see so much emphasis being, you know, placed on um, female achievement. Um, so, you know, my daughters, they're always getting talked to about, um, you know, go into engineering and, and, and work on these skills. And you know, it seems to be there's, there's more of a focus on girls. And again, this, could, this is a sample size of one. Um, whereas my son is a, left a little bit alone more to kind of figure things out for himself. Um, and that's kind of what I see in, in school systems and in, in culture at large. Is, is that having an effect? I mean, I know we talk about, and, and I do want to dig into this kind of fatherless fatherlessness because that, that is a topic that I'm interested in, but is there something else kind of culturally going on with regards to differences in how we treat uh, boys and girls. Yes, I mean we're clearly in an era where the dominant force in gender issues, for example, is the belief, and in almost every um, college and in many many high schools, especially high schools in wealthy areas, um, they what all of those have in common is a belief that we've lived in a patriarch that the world has been dominated by a patriarchy. Uh, which has made rules to benefit men at the ex uh, to benefit men at the expense of women, and so that leaves your son feel and, and your, when your son enters college in particular, especially in the social sciences, he learns that he has male privilege, and if he tries to explain the way he looks at the world, he's told he's mansplaining, um, and if he's uh, if he's complaining, he's told to man up. And this is, um, and so he really feels like, so here's the sex, the gender, boys, who are already told, don't express your feelings. Boy, you know, pe boy, men who are successful um, don't express feelings, they repress feelings. So he's already into feeling repression as part of being a boy. And then in addition to that, he's told by the liberals, uh, who are supposed to be gender, more general, general and gender fluid, he's told, you know, your man, if you express your feelings, you're mansplaining, unless, of course, your feelings are 100% supportive of women. 
And so he goes into school already and inhib inhibited about expressing his feelings, and then that is multiplied in the social sciences, which are supposed to open people up. And so this is a very challenging area for boys to live in. He's being, uh, your, your daughters are taught, um, you know, enter into the STEM professions. There'll be special scholarships and available for you for the STEM professions, but the boys aren't told, enter into the caring professions, if you wish. Um, it, the, the growth in the future is going to be in the health industries, and, and you can be a nurse, and you can be a, a radiation oncologist, and you can be, um, you know, all, all, all of these things that you can do in the caring area. If you're, if you're sort of more of a physical boy, you can be um, a caretaker at home. You can be a librarian. You can be um, all these things that boys oftentimes are not don't have open to them that are outside of their gender roles, or you can be a full-time father. And, um, and, and it would be especially appropriate if you'd be a full-time father if you married a woman um, who was very interested in earning a lot of money. She wanted to be a have-it-all woman. And if you're oriented toward being social and, and um, if, you, if you're oriented toward being a caring type of person, uh, you might be very appropriate to be a full-time dad, just like many women who are oriented that way might potentially be a full-time mom. So these uh, opportunities, our sons are not being, they were taught historically to be warriors and, 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 and to be heroes if they're warriors, but now that fathers are needed, we're not training our sons to be father warriors, um, and that's, uh, we're not training our sons in school to um, to learn how to, to what what are the differences between father style and mother style? Um, why are children who are we're not teaching them that children who are raised by a, a check a, 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 an equal amount of father and mother do far better than children who are not raised uh, with an equal amount of father and mother? And uh, and we're not saying what do dads do differently, and why is it? that what dads do are so helpful to our children. In fact, that would be, I think, a really wonderful way to go now for a while if you'd like to to look at you know, what dads do and why it's so important. Yeah, but before that, I just wanted to reflect on something you said because it really struck a chord with me was, you know, the way we, we treat boys and, and, you know, this talk about mansplaining and, you know, male privilege and, and specifically white male privilege um, one of the people who uh, wrote a review for you um, for the boy crisis is uh, Dr. Philip Zimbardo, um, yes. which I'm, I'm sure is a name you're familiar with. But I remember as an undergraduate psychology student back at, at the University of Connecticut, you know, Zimbardo's prison study was something that we studied pretty, you know, in, in multiple classes between social psychology you know, as well as um, in, in sociology. Um, and and the, the implications of that, of, of just how you treat people in certain cultures or subcultures, really has an impact, a very immediate impact, on their own behavior. Um, I'm seeing that kind of echoed through in what you're, what you're telling me in, in this conversation. Absolutely. And, in fact, the prison study that Zimbardo conducted is... is one of the best examples of how when you put somebody in a role, when you tell them that 
they, that they are, for people that don't know about the prison study, uh, they just randomly took a group of young students and had half of them be the prisoners and half of them be the prison guards, and the, and the prisoners were treated with you know, very significant disrespect, and after, and after a while they started um, you know, um, behaving in a way that was totally um, different from the way that the prison guards uh, started behaving, which was much more abusive. And so your parallel to that is is absolutely exactly accurate and boys today are are feeling like they're um they're feeling uh, ashamed about their sexuality but no one is saying you know gee um, you know, we're saying sex is dirty on the one hand, um, and then we're, and then right after that we're saying, oh boys, it's your responsibility to initiate the dirt. Girls, you have the out, the option to initiate sexuality with a male, um, but males still have the expectation to not only initiate. Um, but also to um, to pay if on a uh, on a date. So many women, many oftentimes in college, they they don't you know they pay for each other. But then often when it's a it's an important date or a, a girl that he's really interested in, it's the you know still it's the guy paying. And after it gets into the twenties, it's the guy paying more frequently. And um, and so uh, you go to the maitre d' of any major beautiful uh, restaurant that's an upscale restaurant. And you ask, um, excluding for birthdays and anniversaries, uh, what percentage of the time do the males pay? What percentage of the time do the females pay when it's not in a family uh, dynamic? And the maitre d's will usually tell you about 98% of the time the males pay. And so we still expect boys to compensate for their inferiority to girls romantically and sexually by paying for them for the drinks, for the for the dinners, for the flowers, for the uh, driving, and so on. And so these are these are statements that the, these are ways of expecting boys to have to to again comp the person who when you have a consultant pay for you. Um, th that's a way of saying to that consultant or what the consultant that is valued. He's the one you pay to be uh, have time with that consultant. The more the consultant is valued, the more you pay. And the more that females are considered beautiful, the more we tend to pay, the boy tends to pay to be with them, or the male tends to pay to be with them. And so um, that's compensation for the lack of worthiness until you pay for that person's time. And so those are things that we really have to question in the school system, question at home. Um, it's, fortunately, it's been questioned to some degree, and it's not as, not as uh, dichotomous as it used to be. But the, the lack of respect for boys is very much like the lack of respect that the prisoners experienced in the uh, Zimbardo prison experiment. The, um, the other thing, though, I think is, is really important for, uh, that we were talking about just before that, is very important for parents to understand, uh, which is that, um, that there are differences in parenting styles between fathers and mothers. So, for example, and that those differences have outcomes. And without the father's parenting style, there's often a slippery slope that a boy, especially, and often a girl goes down that leads them to being non-productive in the world and having being more likely to be depressed. And so I'll give you just one example of that. There's In the Boy Crisis book, I look at 10 different major differences between father and mother um, parenting styles and why both parenting styles need to be respected, communicated with by the parents as to what is better uh, or what blend is the best for a child in any given situation. So I'll give an example of a typical difference. Um, 
dads will much be much more likely to roughhouse with both their sons and their daughters, especially their sons. And um, moms would be more likely to be, um, excuse me, um, Jim, um, be careful of the kids um, uh, hurting them or getting them too close to the to this couch or the, the credenza or the night table or whatever, um, a coffee table. Uh, you're going to hit their heads on the coffee table. And, um, and then the mother's thinking internally to herself, maybe not saying this, I feel like, you know, my husband is just one more child that I have to monitor. <laughs> like I had I had two child, three children, but this feels like four. And the um and the, the and she and she's trying to repress herself from saying that. And then and she's fearful that the, one of the children or both will get hurt. And sooner or later, almost a hundred percent likely, one of them or both of them or three of them get hurt. And she's then blaming herself for saying, you know, I knew I should have protected my children more, but I didn't. I, they seemed to be having fun, and I wanted to trust my husband. And, and so that's her way of looking at this. The father um, is roughhousing, and he is not able, he doesn't read books like The Boy Crisis to find out that when you roughhouse, you actually help children make a distinction between being assertive and being aggressive, um, knowing when they can punch or their dad to, to win in the wrestling match and when they can kick their dad in a vulnerable place or poke his <laughs> eyes or pull his hair, uh, and when they can't. And dad doesn't explain to mom that that's a, an important lesson that comes out of roughhousing that we now have very good scientific documentation for us, but he just he allows himself to be seen as just one more child. So the second thing he doesn't understand or explain to the mom, and therefore moms aren't not, um, moms can't hear what dads don't say. So moms aren't to blame about this, but dads don't explain that. You know, when I roughhouse with the child, I create a bond. That bond allows me to enforce boundaries without creating a feeling of um, I, uh, of desire on the part of the child to rebel against me because I'm bonding with them rather than prepping them by my boundary enforcement to rebel against me. Um, and so none of that is explained by the dad. So, but the dad unwittingly does it. Um, okay, enough, enough with the boundary, uh, enough with the roughhousing. It's um, nine o'clock is your bedtime. Um, by um, whenever you get done with your homework, you brush your teeth, you do your chores, everything that is on the plate, then whatever time's left between then and dinner time and bedtime, uh, you can do whatever. We'll, well, I'll do whatever I want to, whatever you want to with me. Um, and the mother goes, not roughhousing just before bed. Uh, you must be crazy. It's going to get the kid all excited. And the dad is not really caring and focusing on that. What the dad is focusing on is the boundaries being enforced, um, uh, have, having a bond that will allow him to, at um, whenever the kids get done, to do whatever they want before they go to bed. And part of the deal is at 9 o'clock, lights off, you sleep. Um, or you, you know, try to go to sleep. And the kids, uh, unlike um, they, as a result of those boundaries being enforced, um, and if the child says, oh, you know, it's 9 o'clock, I didn't have a chance to do the homework, that is far more likely to say, sorry, you had the opportunity to do your homework before. There's no, you know, no more games, no more what you want to do. It's 9 o'clock now. You take responsibility for not doing your homework. That's your challenge. Mom is more likely to say, um, well, 
if you didn't do your homework, you should maybe then do it now. We want to make sure you get that done before you go to bed. And I do want to make sure you get your teeth done before you go to bed. So, so statistically speaking, we now know that when under, under mom's care, moms will set bedtimes that are earlier. Dads will tend to set bedtimes that are, uh, um, so I'm sorry, moms will tend to set bedtimes that are, yes, um, that, that, that I did say it right, that moms will tend to set bedtimes that are earlier, but the kids will get to bed later with the mom. Mom, dads will set t- bedtimes that are, um, uh, are uh, later, but the kids get to bed earlier than they do with the mom. So uh, because the kids are far more likely with dads to get to bed at exactly the time or within a few minutes of the time that, the ch- that, that was set at the beginning. And so this boundary enforcement um, fo- focuses the teaches the children to focus on doing what they need to do in order to finish their homework, et cetera, before they get what they want to play more. Um, and so that uh, so the children raised predominantly by dads are 15%, only 15% of them become ADHD. Children raised predominantly by moms, 30% become ADHD because the children raised by dads are more likely to have the discipline to focus on doing what they have to do first. So now here's where the really important um, uh, lessons start. The children take the great, the children with a lot of father involvement take that greater ability to enforce boundaries and they complete their homework. The children raised predominantly by moms without dad involvement are more likely to not have good boundary enforcement not and be more likely to have ADHD, not be able to complete their homework, try to complete their homework but get sidetracked by the next text message or the newest video game or the newest video. And so they, they and, and then they don't get back and complete it as well or on time. And the, the boys especially do badly, who are already more ADHD-prone, do worse in school. And then doing worse in school, they feel badly about themselves that they couldn't complete something, or they had an aspiration to be an Olympic athlete or a basketball player or whatever. They didn't have the discipline to follow through on all the drills and the tedium that it takes to, to be good at anything. And so they start feeling badly about themselves in sports, badly about themselves in school, um, and that begins to make them withdraw, feel alienated, have fewer friends, fewer less respect from, te- from teachers. Uh, they then withdraw into things like video games. Video games, which are good up to a certain point, become addictive when they're withdrawn into and in, in that mode. And then when it becomes boy-girl time, uh, the girls are not interested in going out with the losers. They're more interested in going out with the quarterbacks and the, um, and the, and, you know, the student body presidents, the people that have had uh, much more of a winner body. So the boys find themselves uh, losers among the girls, and, um, and that begins to make them uh, res- uh, resort to video porn rather than to, um, to, the, to, to, to the girls directly. And so then they get addicted to the por- porn, and then when they finally do have a, a relationship that might be sexual with a female, uh, they, they're treating her like somebody in the porn m- movies. The girl feels objectified, withdraws in disgust, um, and the boy feels like um, uh, he's convinced that he is the loser he thought he, he thought and feared he was. And that leads him to a lot of depression, which in its worst-case scenarios, it 
leads to suicide, and in super worst-case scenarios, leads to an anger at the people at school who don't appreciate his sensitivity and his uh, wonderfulness, and that anger in the you know with a, a number of things happening uh, in conjunction with that can lead to the school shootings, and it's one of the reasons why all your mass shootings, 26 out of 27, are the most um, dangerous, the most um, lethal of those between 8 and 58 killed. Um, those are done by um, children um, who have been brought up with minimal or no father involvement. So, I mean, it really is a, a, a cyclical thing. I mean, it, it starts, um, you know, it, it starts, uh, I don't want to say small, but, it, you know, it starts with, um, you know, some feelings of self-doubt, but it kind of snowballs into something that's, you know, extremely, extremely sinister, um, you know, at, at the extreme. If, I mean... So, I mean, and starting with, with this, the notion of, you know, the absence of fathers in the household, you know, I, I'm sh- I know that some of it is, is, of course, the result of divorce and, and not having equal custody. Um, but then there's also, you know, obviously, you know, fathers who just kind of opt out of, opt out of the process as well. Is there a difference um, in, 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 uh, between, um, between, you know, fatherless kids with those different scenarios? You know, is... Is the kid whose father has just completely opted out um, going to be worse off than you know the kid who who just doesn't see his dad as much as he sees his mother? Yeah, it depends on how the kid interprets it, which partially depends on the kid's personality, and it also depends on how the mother frames the father. So. Um, oh, uh, President Obama, for example, did not have direct father involvement, had a lot of grandfather involvement, but his mother, he talks about in his, in his book on this issue, um, his mother was always talking positively about the dad and telling stories that, um, that um, um, Barack Obama could, could um, allow himself to visualize his dad being a heroic figure. And so, but uh, what we have happened in many divorce situations is children say that about 60% of the time, uh, the mothers speak very negatively about their dad, and um, about 11% of the time, the fathers speak negatively about the moms. And so, the it's so when there is um, a, a lot of bad mouthing of the dad then especially the boy looks in the mirror and he sees the body language of the dad, the nose, the, you know, the eyes, the ears of the dad, and begins to fear that if the dad is, he's being told that the dad is a liar or irresponsible or a narcissist, that maybe, oh, he's a narcissist. After all, he is looking in the mirror. Or he is, um, maybe the, he, he did lie yesterday and he wasn't, he didn't get his homework in on time and he's beginning to fear that all the things that the mom is saying are negative about the father are going to be negative about him, and that haunts him. And he can't process that with the father without fearing that that he'll get the father and mother into a fight with each other. He can't process that with the mother if he's living primarily with his mother because um, he doesn't feel that that's going to endear him to the mother and will only lead to greater amounts of strictness and things like that. And so he then end up, ends up internalizing that, and <clears throat> and that can be very destructive. Secondly, if he feels that the, if he learns uh, one of the most harmful things is if he learns that the, he, he picks up either directly or indirectly that the father doesn't want to be with him, uh, that they and doesn't understand the reason that the father's left. So 
oftentimes when the uh, the mother is bad mouthing the father a lot, the father the child doesn't pick up the message that the father really wants to and desires uh, to be with the children. And in the worst case scenarios, the father might actually, after a while, um, n- give up the fight to be with the children. Um, and so, because he feels like he's not being valued, his his dad qualities are not being valued. That every time he is with the children, um, he's gate what is called gate kept. Um, that the mother is saying, um, "Oh, you know, you're 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 take you took the kids out camping and and you let them go off by themselves. Um, how you know how could you possibly do that? You you didn't know didn't you know that they could get hurt or something along those lines? You let the kid go to the playground and you didn't stay there with him um, while he's at the playground. Well, dads have different ways of viewing that. Even if the child gets into a fight while he's at the playground." The dad would like to be around to talk with the child about what got him into the fight. Uh, what you know? What were the what were the what were the red flags that he could avoid next time? From dad's perspective, that fight was a useful lesson in helping the the child bring attention to what he does to create outcome positive for him. And he'd rather have that happen to the child when he or she is young uh, than have that happen to the child um, after they're no longer able to uh, process that with the uh, with the parent. Um, but moms see it as, you know, that was abusive, and maybe the dad went back and watched a hockey game or a football game, which just convinces the mom that the, that the dad cares more about the NFL game uh, than he does about his son. Um, and so those are the types of things that are misunderstanding between mothers and fathers when father style and mother style are not uh, respected and uh, and when there's not good communication uh, between the mother and the father, which is why I really encourage um, you know every couple, especially ones that are um, divorced or ones that have um, single parent situations to not only get the other parent involved, but to know how to communicate with the other parent about uh, assumptions that you have as to what why you're doing what you're doing, communicate that to the husband, which usually mothers do a lot better than than dads do um, in communicating their best intent uh, to the mothers. Now, I mean, this this issue of, you know, uh, sons, and, and I guess I don't want to ignore daughters here, but I know the name of the book is The Boy Crisis. Um, you know, the, it, the issue of fatherless uh, or, or lack of fatherly involvement um, has some wide-ranging implications that that you've spoken about. Yet when I when I see a politician get up there, you know, and speak, you know, I never hear anyone really bringing it up as an issue that they vow to focus on. You know, because you know, on, on the one hand, um, and, and I don't want to downplay the role guns play in 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 violence, but on the one hand, we've got all this. You know, we get a lot of uproar about guns and gun safety and gun laws. But, you know, what about the root cause of, of you know, some of these? And, and I know you, you kind of been me- mentioning the statistic, you know, 26 out of 27 of the, the you know, the big mass shootings are have been done by, uh, you know, young men without a father in their lives. Like, you know, and if that's one of the, the, the strongest, you know, predictors of, of violence or, or influencers of violence, you know, why aren't we hearing about it? Why, why isn't anyone you know, any politicians talking about that aspect of things? Well, politicians only talk about what, they're, what they feel will get them votes. And the politicians that do not, are, you know, that articulate things that are ahead of, so too much ahead of their time and are not being supported by their constituencies 
um, are not, um, you know, they, they don't get in office and we don't call them politicians anymore. <laughs> um, and so what we, what we really need to do is take responsibility for pressuring our politicians. And this is, as you know, I've, I'm the chair of a, a, co- a coalition to create a White House Council on Boys and Men. And um, and there's and we're making an effort to speak. Uh, in in, um, in June, I'll be going to Washington D.C. and speaking with legislators and um, people from the Department of um, Education about creating a White House Council on Boys and Men. And so and also getting um, and trying to line up some legislators to support a larger cultural shift in understanding that there's a need to pay attention to this boy crisis because it's not just boys that are being hurt. Um, it, it is um, girl. You know, we want our daughters. You want both of your daughters to have guys that are worthy of their love, and if they choose to be heterosexual, and so that's that's that is it's, you know this is the women's movement has made the mistake of saying you know men are the oppressors and women are the oppressed, but in fact men and women are in the same boat. When only one sex wins, both sexes lose, and so there's there's a need for both sexes to um, we benefit, we males benefit when women have gotten out there in the workplace and shared the breadwinning role and been more competent and women are happier, they're more fulfilled, they're more purposeful, um, they're more achievement-oriented, um, and they have choices. And when boys have that same type of choice of being a full-time dad or a full-time um, uh, worker or doing some combination of both and, um, and, being, um, and being valued for their style in the family, uh, this will be a benefit to the children and also to women and, and, um, and, and guys as well. And so we're, we're really, um, we really need to move to communicate that to our legislators. And we also need to move to communicate to our legislators that guns are not, you know, that, that there's a reason that in Australia they used to have a lot of mass shootings. And then when they had gun buyback programs and extreme restrictions on guns, uh, we've gone from uh, uh, almost an equal number per capita um, of Australians versus U.S. in mass shootings down to zero mass shootings since 1978 after those laws were passed in Australia. And that if we want a lack of, um, of, of mass shootings, we have two ways of doing it. Uh, one is bring fathers back into the family, and the other one is um, is follow the uh, follow for at least an experimental period what Australia did, and then we'll see. I think with those two things, guns eliminated. The problem is that that liberals, as a rule, uh, want mothers uh, do do not put any emphasis on father involvement, and conservatives, as a rule, do not want the, uh, significant gun control. And so, on both sides of the aisle, you have the two biggest things that commi- that create uh, mass shootings. Uh, you have those uh, resistance to uh, one of them on the liberal side and one of them on the conservative side of the aisle. Yeah, I think that, that's as, as you can see, I'm an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> the the title of your next <laughs> book could be uh, "Resistance to Progress," maybe. <laughs> right, and and so the, and the very sad thing is that you know when liberals do not um, when liberals call themselves progressive but aren't progressive enough to see and understand the value of of, of men and fathers, and uh, then that's no longer progressive. Well, I have to say this: this conversation has been very, uh, very enlightening. If 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 we were to end it um, with some words of advice for, um, let's say, you know, parents who are raising sons right now, um, maybe they are, um, you know, as part of a married household or or not, um, 
But what 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 would you what would you, if you could sit down? Actually, how about this? If you could sit down and talk to somebody who's just about to give birth to a son, uh, and, and thinking about it as a couple, what would you what would you stress to them? What would you tell them to? Hey, if if you don't do anything, just remember this. What, what would this be? Yes, this would be study what fathers contribute, because mothers tend to already study what mothers contribute, um, but study what fathers contribute and make sure that that parenting style, not just the father as physical being, but the parenting style is integrated into that child's life, and you will have, second, have family dinner nights, but don't, but structure them in the way that I talk about in the boy crisis, because a family dinner night that is not well organized and structured um, with with the right guidelines can become a family dinner nightmare. That's if that's if you can be in an intact family. If you are in a non-intact family, if you've had a divorce, you've raised your children by yourself, then there's um, then see if you. Experiment, study what dads contribute and why they're needed, and find the father if you can, and let him know that you understand now how and why he is needed, and 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 integrate him into the uh, ask, invite him into um, the parenting process, letting him know how he will be valued uh, in a way that he wasn't before. Men are almost always willing to serve. Men have always been willing to die in war um, if they were if they felt needed. So you have to let a man who's not involved know that there that he's wanted and needed and has purpose. Third, if you're a single mom who you know says I'd love to war and that's a great idea, but you know the father is either passed away, I can't contact him, or he's in jail, or he's genuinely really abusive beyond what you're saying here. Then get your son involved in Cub Scouts if he's that, of that age, Boy Scouts. They both have very significant histories of being able to um, develop character in your son um, and, and bring out the best, best of masculinity and not, its, not the toxic sides of masculinity. Um, the, um, make sure that the, if you're at all faith-based in your orientation or even if you're not, get your son involved in a faith-based community uh, where there's a good male leader. Uh, facilitator uh, who organizes groups of boys your son's age and have boys be able to through that male leaders facilitation uh, express feelings to each other so that they discover that they're not alone and isolated in the feelings that they have Uh, boys tend to keep their feelings behind a mask and that makes them feel alone lonely and that makes them feel like their only companionship is in that video game or that pornography and so those are some of the things I would say are, are very um, uh, pivotal, but I, I think as one reads The Boy Crisis, you'll see you know, 400 pages of advice, and <laughs> I, I hope you know, um, help to um, you know, go much deeper than that, and more importantly, to understand the reasons behind each of the suggestions. Well, I have to say it is, it is a great book, um, and uh, where, can, uh, where can people buy it? Pretty much anywhere uh, that you know, certainly can go to my website warrenferrell.com, but or just go to Boy Crisis and Amazon and um, or Barnes and Noble is also doing a good job with it. Okay, well, very good. Uh, thank you so much uh, for your time today, uh, Dr. Farrell, and I wish you a great rest of your day and maybe an early start to your weekend. Thank you very much. That would be delightful. <laughs> okay.
I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to my interview with Dr. Warren Farrell, author of The Boy Crisis. If you want to learn more about Dr. Farrell, visit warrenfarrell.com. And of course, if you want to learn more about me and my books, visit michaelcarlinauthor.com. That's Carlin with an O, not an I. And if you liked what you heard here, please consider telling a friend about it. We appreciate all referrals. So for uncorking a story, this is Mike Carlin saying thank you for listening and until next time.